So we are in James chapter 5. We have come to the end, the final chapter in James. And uh, our, our theme has been faith that moves mountains. With a practical book like James, it's easy to go through and find a bunch of do's and don'ts and got to get better at this and got to do that and a lot of half-do's. And certainly there is that aspect of, of God working on us and changing us and teaching us and growing us. But what we need to remember more than anything is that starts and begins with our faith in the Lord. It's the work of the Lord in your life, in my life, that changes things. It's the work of the Lord when you, when you come up against something where, man, Lord, I want to change, but it just seems like I can't and I'm getting frustrated. It's the work of the Lord. It's the work of prayer. It's the work of faith. Faith that many times moves the mountains that are in our heart. And James, or uh, in Matthew, Jesus and his, his, his disciples were traveling around. And in chapter 17, it says, And then they came, and when they came to the multitude, a man came to him, to Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How, How long shall I bear with you? Now Jesus said this to his disciples. Now, if you came into my office to counsel and I said, Oh, faithful, faithless and perverse person, how long shall I bear with you? You probably wouldn't bear with me very long. I wonder how many of today's American Christians would bear with Jesus and his frankness and his honesty and his correction. Jesus said, how long shall I bear with you? And then he said said to the the father, "Bring bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. He also added, so that they might know, he said, however, this this kind does not come out except by much prayer and fasting. So Jesus addressed their unbelief, and surely they had unbelief, according to Jesus. That's what he said. And I wonder... Could have their unbelief, their unfaith, kept them from praying, kept them from fasting, kept from kept them from knowing the will of God for this young one. Now, Jesus certainly used it as a point of teaching. But oftentimes there are those times where if our faith is is just we'll just walk in it, then sure enough, God's gonna give us something to do. And it might be pray, it might be fast, it might be go to your neighbor. It, it might be give someone a cup of cold water. But that faith, as we learned from James chapter 2, it always has 
that subsequent following good work. Jesus said just a small amount, a pure amount, a pure amount of faith, it can move a mountain. It can move a mountain. Second Timothy, Paul said this in 3 and 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. In other words, it teaches it us. It teaches us about faith. It's profitable for reproof. It rebukes us. For correction, it finds flaws in us. For instruction in righteousness, it tells us how to live right, how to be like Jesus. For what purpose? Paul goes on to write in verse 17, so that the man of God, the woman of God, might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, ready to move any and every mountain that life throws at us. The mountains, they come through trials. They come through finances. They come through us controlling our tongue. They come through us understanding and and figuring out our faith. They come from prejudices. They come from all of the things that James, in, in this whole book, this entire book, he has addressed. You see, because this book is meant to be used on a regular basis. As we come to the end of it, I hope it's just the beginning. I hope that if, if you have just been introduced to the book of James, that you will go, man, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of good instruction in righteousness. There's some correction. There's some reproof. There's some good things I need to know about God and how things work and how my faith works and that you'll use it, that you might go and you might read it over and over again, that some of you might put it to memory, that some of you would let it sink deep into your hearts to indeed let it change you. So chapter 5 breaks down like this. Number one, a warning to the wicked rich. Number two, faith, that is, faith establishes the heart. The third point will be faith endures suffering. The fourth point, faith is dependable. The fifth point, faith prays effectively. And the sixth point, yes, we're going to have six points and we're going to get through all of them. Faith helps the wandering heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for James. God, his faithfulness to, to write down the words that you, did, you inspired him to write. Lord, to give us, Lord, to give us a path, to give us hope, to give us things that, that we might, Lord, change in our hearts and in our minds. So today, once again, we ask that, that our hearts would be ready, our ears would be open, that we would hear from your Holy Spirit, that you'd be glorified in our time of Bible study. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as the last two weeks, I will warn you, at any moment, I could start coughing like a crazy man. Uh, I am armed with my Jolly Ranchers. I am armed with cough drops. I am armed with water. Last week, I made it through the first two services, and then the third service got me. Thankfully, the Lord was gracious, and it was only just a little bit. Only just a little bit. James chapter 5 and verse 1, a warning to the wicked rich. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And James at this point is speaking prophecy. He's he's foretelling the plight of the ungodly rich man. 
says in verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You think and, and you have been deceived and you have, you, your identity has been in your riches. And when it is revealed that those riches cannot save you at the end of your life, then it will indeed leave you destitute. He says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. You've stored up gold and silver that has no value when Jesus comes back. No value will that treasure be when you stand before a living God that had the requirement of faith, that had the requirement of belief. It says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord knows, in other words, he sees you, you, haven't, you haven't cheated these people without him knowing. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, this is the third time and the most brutal time that James brings up this issue of rich. In chapter 1, he says the rich man will fade away in his pursuit, in his basic idolatry of wealth. In chapter, chapter 2, he says, he says to the people that, that he's writing to, hey, make, make sure that you do not uh, show favoritism to the rich over the poor because it's these rich that drag you into their courts. It these, it's these rich that will indict you. It these, it's these rich that will come against you. It's these rich that blaspheme the holy name by which you live by. And certainly wealth and the power that comes with it has always, will always, corrupt some of those who have it. It is the way of the world. It is the way of the world. Now, James here is not indicting every rich person. He's describing the wicked rich. The rich that have no mercy. The rich that say, I'm going to use my money to get everything I want by whatever means. I'm going to use my money to manipulate I'm going to use my money for power, for control, for authority. It is the way of the world. And it won't be changing until Jesus comes back. Until Jesus takes control and deals with those that would do such things. Now, Jesus described the gospel going out as seed that's thrown out into people's lives. And, and how it is that they would receive these seeds. In Matthew 13 and 22, it says, Now, he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, word and he becomes unfruitful. I believe that James here is talking to people, perhaps influences from, out, from outside the church, but also because of chapter 2 and how he describes it, that they were in the church somehow as well, that they had creep, crept into the church. In Revelation 3 and 18, Jesus wrote this to the lukewarm 
church, the rich of the lukewarm church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You need to buy gold from me because your gold, it's corroded. That you may be truly rich, rich in the things of heaven. And white garments, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, your riches have, have even diminished your ability to see the, wor the world for what it really is. Your riches has, have blurred your vision. But then he says this to, to them, to the lukewarm church, to the rich that have decided they didn't necessarily need the Lord. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You see, Jesus loves the rich. He absolutely does. But if the rich does not humble themselves, give control of their riches over to God that they might use them for righteous reasons, and they are indeed corrupted by them, then, then, then the word says that God will indeed judge them. Proverbs gives us this healthy balance when it comes to wealth in the Christian. Proverbs 30 says, Remove falsehood from me and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The, 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 the writer of Proverbs says, Lord, Lord, don't make me so rich that I forget you. Don't make me so poor that, that, that I feel and I'm tempted to steal. So just give, just give me today's daily bread. Just give me, give me what I need. Our second point this morning, faith establishes the heart. Faith establishes the heart. Now in verse 6, James said to the rich, you have condemned you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. You see, James knew that his brethren, the poor church, those who were being manipulated, they had no power in this world against these men. They had no power against the authority of their money, their influence, their ability to indict them, their ability to drag them into their courts. They had no earthly power. They had no earthly power. So he says this, in verse 7, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, establish your hearts. Now, in Israel, the rainy season will go from about October into spring, perhaps March or, or April. And he, and he says the farmer waits on this process. And it may not rain the whole time. He may, there may be a few weeks, hey, without rain. And he's wondering, hey, is that, you know, is that latter rain going to come? Because I can't really do anything until late spring or summer when the harvest comes. And if I don't get all this rain, you know, but he's, he's patient. There's nothing he can do. He waits on the Lord. He's patient. And then he receives the, the fruit from the Lord. He says, in your struggling and perhaps a very, very poor community of believers, he says, in that struggling, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Establish your hearts in faith for his return. Be looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith. And in the meantime, turning hardship 
into joyous patience. Turning hardship into joyous patience. Trusting God with a heart established in faith that waits for his return. Now that sounds like something that James has already said in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, turn these trials and, and this oppression, and, and because you can do nothing about this, except have patience. Except turn it over to God. And in doing so, you have done the very thing that's going to make you perfect and complete in him. Faith establishes the heart for the coming of the Lord. So what's God asking you to be patient for? It will be worth it. It will be worth it in your character, in your walk with the Lord, in your trust, in your faith. And there's a good chance that it will be good for those that are involved in whatever it is you have to be patient for as well. What's God asking you to be patient for? Trust him. Establish your heart. Establish your heart. Thirdly, faith endures suffering. Faith endures suffering. He says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And oftentimes when we are facing struggles together, and certainly it probably was for uh, the readers of James' letter, that they were bumbling and stumbling and hurting each other and disappointing each other and perhaps, perhaps even sinning against each other as they walked this walk of faith, as they worked these things out, as they tried to overcome all of the difficulties. He says, don't, don't grumble against each other. That, that just simply makes the problem worse. He says, he says be, be someone who, who fixes the problems. Don't fan the flames of a problem. You be a problem Solver. Don't, don't, don't grumble. Don't grumble. In verse 10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. In other words, the prophets did exactly what God wanted them to do. The Lord would pick out a prophet and say, You're faithful. Now I have this word for you. Go and say it. And then what happened? They got beaten. They got killed. They got thrown into jail. They got persecuted for the very thing that God asked them to do. He says, take them as an example. We count, we count them blessed that, that, that God, God has them covered. God indeed has them covered. He says in verse 11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. I, God saw their endurance of faith and they will be blessed. And he says, you have heard of the, pa- the per- perseverance of Job and seen the end, and end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And James is saying, hey, when you have a rough go of it, remember, men have gone before you. I remember reading James or Job for the first time. And, and like many of you, if you've read through Job, you're going, Lord, how come you let Satan mess so horribly with poor Job? God, how could you do that to this man? Are you just messing with him? But I would submit to you that as, as, I, as I learned and as I saw that this is the way of the world. That so many men and women after Job have got so much encouragement by reading the end of Job and seeing what, where God took him and, and how God was faithful to him that in their circumstances 
they were able to continue because they saw Job go through all this and not curse God and keep their faith and continue on. That this endurance, even through suffering, God blessed. Now, suffering is a bit of a mystery. It's still a bit of a mystery. But what's not a mystery as we grow older and more mature in the Lord is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to whatever it is he's allowing me to walk. Whatever path he's got for me, whatever's coming against me, God's got me covered. God's got me covered. Faith endures suffering. Fourth, faith is dependable. Faith is dependable. It says in verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your, and your no be no lest you fall into judgment. Now, I remember being kids with, with, my, with my sisters or my, my friends, and, you know, when, when, when you weren't quite sure that you could trust someone and you were going to either tell them something or ask them to do something or let them in on something, you know, you might say, hey, you swear to God? You swear to God? Swear in the Bible? Put your hand on the Bible. You see, what were we doing? We were saying, I really don't trust your integrity all by yourself. I need to give you a little conviction of God before I can really trust that if I tell you this thing, you're going you're to keep it a secret, you know, or what you're telling me is really the truth. You see, it was an issue of, of integrity and of trust, and, and James is saying, hey, you're children of God. You represent God. We represent God. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. When you say something, do it. When God has shown you and you're to say yes, then follow through. Now, this begs the question, can we ever change your mind? When can we change your mind? Well, let's, let's start here. You can change your mind when changing your mind doesn't affect anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't disappoint anybody. It doesn't, it doesn't lower the the view, their view of your integrity. That's when we can change our mind. Really when it doesn't matter. But when it matters, James says, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Absolutely. Faith is dependable. We can and should be able to depend on each other and others should be able to, to depend on us. Our fifth point, faith prays effectively. Faith prays effectively. Effectively, Look at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I'll tell you right up front, this is something that we practice at Rocky Mountain Calvary. The, the pastors here, we hold a, a little vial in our, on our keychain and our church keys, and it's got a little bit of oil in it. And if you come forward and you'd like to be prayed for and anointed with oil, then, then we absolutely will do that. So the question is, James, what about this oil? What, what is the significance of this oil? What, what does it have to do here with this, this prayer of faith? And there are five different things that I'll submit to you about oil that oil was used for and that men have um, presumed is, is the reason for the oil. 
Number one, it was medicinal. Oil was used for lots of things medicinally, for an upset stomach, for cuts and bruises externally. Secondly, oil was to set something apart holy unto God. The priests, before they would go into the holiest of holies and, and offer sacrifices before the people, they were anointed with this oil. The furniture and the utensils in the temple and in the holiest of holies was anointed with this oil. This oil was special and it had a special mixture that God had ordained and said, you shouldn't use this oil for anything else. This is my oil. It's, it's, it's to let everyone know this is set apart holy unto the Lord, a holy anointing oil. Thirdly, oil was a symbol of celebration of happiness, of light, and of healing. Fourthly, an encouragement or a starting off point for our faith. In other words, God knows, and he, he made us, created us with senses. And oil is something you can feel. You can, you can taste oil. You can smell oil. You can, it, it, it has that unique aroma. And, and so that starting place, that leaping off place for faith, to bolster, bolster our faith by our senses. And fifthly, fifthly, oil represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And certainly for healing, for forgiveness, for power in being witnesses, these are all works of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, I would submit to you that each of these descriptions of oil probably plays into the reason why James says, hey, anoint with oil. Let me give you this example. In 1985, Cinnabon opened its, opened its doors. And before long, they exploded and they went into malls and food courts. Now, if you were in a mall with a Cinnabon, you'd walk by and you would smell that smell. And you might not even see the store, but you would know and recognize. And you would have faith that as you smelled that smell, and if you went over and found that Cinnabon, and you bought that Cinnabon, that you would have this, just this warm, you know, tender, cinnamon, gooey, frosting goodness in your mouth before long. You had that faith, and you were laser-focused many times, figuring out, do I have enough money to buy a four-pack so we can eat two right now and save two for later on? You knew it, laser-focused. If the world can use it to sell cinnamon rolls, why can't God use what he already created, what he originated us to have and to be good, our senses of smell and to feel and, and sight and, and hearing? Why can't he use it? Imagine the high priest. The high priest knew he wasn't perfect. But he had to go into the holiest of holies and he had to offer sacrifices. And if he wasn't pure, God would wipe him out. And he's anointed with oil and he smells this oil and he walks into the holiest of holies. And he smells this, this aromatic oil, which by the way, if you look up the mixture, had cinnamon in it. And his faith was bolstered. His faith was moved. So our faith is born in God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, God's provision, and perhaps this oil helps us focus on those things. You see, because in verse 15 he says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, 
and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You see, it's not the oil. It's not the oil. It's the prayer of faith, and ultimately, it's the Lord. It's the Lord's healing. It's the Lord's job. When I get my oil out and I anoint someone on the forehead or the wrist, I immediately know this is the work of God. This is not my work. I just get to pray. I just get to have faith in God. And that oil is that jumping off point. It's that symbol that we're focused on the Lord, that the Lord does the work. The Lord raises him up. He says in verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another, And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now back in verse 15, James had tied sickness to sin. He said if, if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now not all sickness is attributed to sin. But there is sickness that comes from sin. Sometimes just the practical outlay of, of someone uh, uh, doing something that God has said, hey, don't, don't mess with that. They, they can get sick from it, you know. Other times, God might use it in their life as to bring them back to him. If, if, a, if a person is in sin, I would submit to you that you being a gracious person, you're, you're saying, Lord, whatever you got to do to that person to bring him back to you. So if if you have to make them sick so that they might come to you, then make them sick by all means that their soul might be saved, that their soul might be saved. And James here is saying that I want you to make a habit of confessing your trespasses before each other. Now, God forgives. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. It is God that we first and foremost need to confess our sin to, and, and he is the forgiver. Our brothers and sisters are not. But... He says there's power when you confess. There's power in the relationships that you have. That is, you come together and as you seek out men that are walking with the Lord and, and, and you confess before them and they pray for you, that there, there can be power in that for healing, for healing from sin, for strength to walk and overcome that sin as well. He says make sure you make this a habit. There's great power in faith that trusts God. Fervency that believes God can heal, that believes God can forgive, that believes God, that, that God will help us overcome sin. And James says, don't walk that alone. Don't walk it alone. Don't be a lone ranger for the Lord. Find a brother, find, find a sister, find, find a pastor, find an elder. If you come down here at any time that God says and, and reveals to you that you need to be prayed for, for healing or forgiveness of, just forgiveness of sin, you want to confess to someone. You, you, just about any time. You can, you can find our facilities manager, Donnie or Randy and Danny, and tell them, and they will pray for you. You can find a pastor. You can find a leader. Anytime. That's, that's what the church is made for. It's not made to be empty Monday through Saturday. It's to be filled up. And, cert- and certainly as we close each and every service to come up and be prayed. And we would love to pray for you. In verse 17, he uses Elijah as an example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's just like us, just like you and me, Elijah. A great prophet, a great man of God, absolutely, just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. 
And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He says, look at Elijah, just like you and me. And he prayed, did the rain stopped. He prayed again three and a half years later. The rain came back. Why did he stop the rain? Why did, why did Elijah stop the rain? This history, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll work us through it. This history comes from 1 Kings 17 and 18, if you're taking notes. The nation of Israel had fallen into worship of Baal, a Canaanite deity. The kings of Israel at the time had brought them into this. Ahab was perhaps the most wicked, and his wife Jezebel, Jezebel helped the people to begin to embrace this worship of Baal. This worship of Baal centered around his, Baal's ability, so-called ability, to control life or rain, the, the early rain and the late, late rain that would, that would bring the, the sustenance of life the food that they needed to eat and worship of Baal was like this. He was pleased, they believed, by sacrificial acts of sex and human sacrifice as they would bury their babies in the foundations of their homes or their buildings that they had sacrificed to Baal. You see, they had turned to these false gods instead of the living God for rain, for the harvest, and they worshiped and they built altars at one point Jezebel had 450 prophets to Baal. God said, Elijah, I'm going to stop the rain. And so Elijah prayed. Three year and a half years later, the Lord said to Elijah, I've got their attention now. And, I'm, and it's time to, to bring the rain back. So Elijah has this challenge with the 450 prophets of Baal. And they're there amongst the people, and the people are watching. And Elijah says, now you, you build your altar, and you cut your bowl, and, and it'll be ready there, and, and I'll do the same. And we'll both cry out to our gods, and the one that brings fire down from heaven consumes the altar. That is the true and living God. So the prophets of Baal, they begin to cry out. They had put the wood and the bull, and as the people watched, they cried out, and they yelled to Baal. The Bible says they cut themselves, and they cried. And time's going on. The day's, the day's running long, and, and Elijah begins to mock them. He says, where is your God? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he can't hear you. And sure enough, their gods did not hear them. And then Elijah took his turn. And it says, he, he talked to the people. He said, come near to me. He took the wood. He put the bull on the altar. I'll read the rest of what had happened. 1 Kings 18, 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering, the evening sacrifice. Now, this, is, this was the time of day when perpetually every day they would sacrifice a lamb to represent God's forgiveness of the people and his, his continual presence with them foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Same time of day. And Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant 
and that I have done all of these things at your word. Lord, you told me what to do, and I went out and did it. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burning sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water. You see, Elijah had told him, don't just leave the wood and the bull. Pour water on it. I want, I, want to, I want to really show you what God can do. And the fire licked up the water in the trench. And all the people saw it. And they fell on their face. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah prayed, and it rained. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. But you see, Elijah prayed what God wanted him to do. He found out, he heard from God, he went out and prayed in faith, and it happened. You see, we know God wants to heal. We know God wants to forgive. We know God wants to give us power to, to, to live and, 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 and overcome temptation and live victorious lives. We know this. And James says, effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it avails much, just like Elijah. When you pray for your brother or sister to be healed, to be, for, to be forgiven, to, be, to have, uh, you know, power over sin. You can know God wants those things already. You can just assume that God wants those things. And the effective prayer of a righteous man, it will avail much. Prayer prays effectively. Lastly, sixthly, faith helps the wandering heart. Verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Cover a multitude of sins. Never underestimate the place that you have and the words that you have and the actions that you have in someone else's life. Never underestimate that family member that just seems like they won't, they won't, they won't. Never give up on them. Never give up on them. Because you see, if you continue and you love them and you encourage them and you pray things that you know God already wants you to pray, it's God's will that that person be saved, that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him, right? That's a prayer in God's will. That's a powerful prayer. That's an effective prayer. And, and so never give up on your actions that you take on influencing others for Christ. If God has influenced you, has saved you, has shown you, has come to you, has revealed these things to you, then part of your faith is turning those wandering souls, turning that wandering brother and sister in the Lord, turning those family members, those friends, back to the Lord. Never give up on that. Never give up on that. Faith establishes the heart. Faith endures suffering. Faith is dependable. 
Faith prays effectively, and faith helps the wandering heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your love. God, I, I do ask that, God, as we continue service, as we continue worshiping you, Lord, that, that you would complete the work in our hearts that James has, James has done. God, that we would be people of faith, that we would be people of prayer. God, that, that our prayers would line up with your will. God, I do pray for that wandering soul today. That you'd bring them back. Bring them back to, to you, Lord. Help them to know that, God, you still love them. You still want to cover over their sin and wipe their sin away. Use them. Lord, that however many days they have, they have walked away from you, receive them back graciously. And God, for the one that is yet to receive you, the one that is yet to give in to you, Lord, believe, believe on you by faith and be saved. God, I lift them up to you where, wherever they're at. Lord, in the cafe, in the upper room, God, in the sanctuary, God, perhaps online, God, work in their heart. Reveal yourself to them. Be glorified. Be glorified in, in our continued worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.